Um, let me let them get out of here, and then we'll start here. Uh, hopefully, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you'll find this a place where you can worship the Lord through song and prayer and uh, the preaching of the Word and fellowship. And uh, we try to do that on Sunday mornings. We do it other ways throughout the week as well, and you can get involved there. I know we have some people still on spring break. Um, in fact, is Eric still on his way back from Disney World? Is Eric on his way back from Disney World still? Michigan? Oh, he went from Disney World to Michigan. Okay. We have some people that went on trips and school trips and missions trips and people who are sick after they got went on vacation. That's always fun to go catch something and bring something back with you that's not fun. Um, but the, we're glad you're here. Well, this morning uh, here at Grace Bible Church is a unique morning for us. Uh, this morning we'll be ordaining our associate pastor of ministry, Jared Manning, the guy who I just mentioned who was praying and leading us in music and uh, song. And, um, and just going to give you a few words. Ordination is a process where a local church sets a man apart to serve in a specific ministry leadership position in the church. Uh, and let me remind you, first of all, that we're all called to ministry. All of us are called to ministry. When people say, I was called to ministry... Well, yeah, you were called to ministry when you were called to salvation, right? And Jared did a great job a few weeks ago when he was preaching on that. We're all called to ministry. Uh, the call of a pastor, an elder, or a deacon is not greater than that of other Christians. It's just different in scope and responsibility. And you see that throughout the scripture. Uh, there is a biblical pres- precedent for ordination, for setting a, 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 a pastor-teacher apart, um, and Paul writes to Timothy, who was a young pastor in the church of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and he, he writes to him about fulfilling his role by using his gifts to serve the church. And, w- and this was recognized and commissioned by, it says, the elders, or the, the Greek word is the presby- presbyters, all right? Which is where we get the word elders. And, and they, 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 they did this in the church by laying hands on him. Now, laying hands is not a negative laying hands, okay? Laid hand on somebody, all right? That's a different kind of laying on of hands. Now, this laying on of hands was a public bestowal of blessing, conferring leadership, and confirming that Timothy was a qualified and equipped leader for the ministry he was called to. That's the laying on of hands. And this morning, we'll, we'll, we're going to keep with that biblical precedent, and we're going to ordain Jared publicly, blessing him and confirming that he is qualified and equipped for the role of pastor here at Grace. And you think, why didn't we do that before uh, he came or when he came? Well, um, even I came, it took him a while to do this as, w- as well, and not for any particular reason other than uh, a man must first be tested. Now, we believe J- Jared was tested before he came, but it's also nice for our body to see this so that we all do this together. We all confirm the call on Jared's life together, not just a few of us, but all of us together. So on this special occasion, I've chosen to preach from the book of Titus. Why the book of Titus? Why this little letter to Titus? Well, this is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus, who was a young pastor that Paul had sent to help shepherd the church on the island of Crete, which is south of mainland Greece. You can look on a map. It's uh, still there, this island called Crete. And I thought it would be more than appropriate for us to learn some of the advice that Paul gave to this young pastor. Unless you think that this sermon is just for Jared, let me tell you, it's not. It's for all of us. It's for me. It's for all of us here. And I promise as we look at this passage together, you're going to figure out this is for me. I don't know what this has to do with Jared, but man, it's for me all over. 
All right, so it's not just for Jared, it's for all of us. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus cha- chapter 2. We're going to be work- looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. T- Titus 2, all right, 11 through 13. You go 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I'm 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. And then if you go too far, you come to Philemon. If you hit Philemon, I'll be surprised. It's only a page long. All right, but that's where Titus sits in all of this. And the title of the message this morning is Professor Grace. What grace teaches. Uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, we come to this time um, that we do every Sunday where we look into your word. Lord, not to set in judgment on your word, but to set under your word. To be changed. To be conformed more in the image of Jesus. To let your word get to the deepest recesses of our heart, dividing a soul and spirit. To let your word richly dwell within us that we might honor you. So Lord, I pray you'd help us set aside those things that are distracting us, thoughts that are distracting us, concerns and cares, and come expectingly that you will use your word to change us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my freshman year of college, I was too excited to hear about one particular rule. It was actually on some of the syllabuses. And the syllabus is the thing they hand out in your class. It kind of tells you what's going to happen in the class. And, and this one specific, specific rule, I, I'm really excited about it because I saw that it was going to benefit me greatly. You like those kind of rules, right? We all like those kind of rules. Ooh, I like that one. It really helps me out. Well, this uh, rule was the ever so popular, I'm out of here if my professor shows up late rule. You guys know that rule? Oh, some of you are shaking your head. Uh, some of you may have saw on your syllabus it was an understood rule that if your professor had his, has his, had his or her master's, you only had to wait 10 minutes. If they were 10 minutes late, then you're out of there. Or if they had their Ph.D. or some kind of doctoral degree, they got 20 minutes. That's how it was at least where I went to school. And you better believe that as soon as that, that professor was just a little bit late, I had my watch like this. Oh. All right, and I'm counting down the minutes. When that professor, if it's master's, 10 minutes, I'm out of here. If it's 10 minutes and one second, they walk through the door, sorry, I'm gone. 20 minutes for a PhD, 20 minutes, one second, I'm gone. I love that rule, and it got me out of many classes because sometimes they would be late. Uh, and I'm looking over here at Chris, he's shaking his head. They hope they don't have a rule at your school like that, but uh, in some places they actually do. And Well, my goal at this point in my college career was not necessary to learn, but to stay eligible to play football. I'll be honest with you. In fact, that's why I went to college in the first place, so I could play football longer uh, and uh, not really concerned about appreciating my professors for their desire to teach me. Now, about a year and a half into my college career, I decided to get serious about learning and uh, began to appreciate my professors a whole lot more. And I truly had some great professors who were truly committed to, to teaching me, instructing me, and helping me. I remember this one particular professor, Dr. Eugene Hall. I must have had him for four or five classes. I I love that man. He was passionate. He was hard, but he was passionate about teaching us, and I I really appreciate his dedication. I'm thankful for that. However, as great as some of my professors were, like Dr. Eugene Hall, um, they couldn't change me from the inside out. See, they were aimed at my intellect, not at what was inside of me. And my biggest problem is not my intellect. Now, some of you would disagree with that. I understand. But my biggest problem is not my intellect. My biggest problem 
is and has always been an internal one. It's my heart. That's my biggest problem. And, and I need a professor, and I needed a professor that could teach to my heart. Well, this morning in our passage in Titus, we're going to be introduced to a different kind of professor. The professor who works to bring about change from the inside out. The professor who works to bring about change in our heart. And his name is Professor Grace. We're going to discover what grace teaches. Now, maybe when you heard that, you're thinking, okay, what grace Bible church teaches? Well, we better teach this because it's in the Bible, but that's not what I'm talking about. What does grace, what does Professor Grace, in a sense, teach? Well, we're going to see that here in Titus 2, 11 through 15, and we're going to answer two questions so that we might know what grace teaches and we might be changed from the inside out. And before I look, if you look at these verses together, let me just give us a brief look at the context. Now, as you know, if you've been to Grace Bible Church for very long, um, we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible. In fact, next week I'll start with the book of Philippians. And we're not going verse by verse through Titus this morning. We don't have time. So I need to bring you up to speed to where we are in the book of Titus so we make sure we get in, in context because the three most important rules in biblical interpretation are what? Context, context, and context. If you concentrate on that, you'll get the rest of it right context. So in chapter 1, Paul gives a greeting to Titus. Then he reminds him to appoint elders. Then he gives qualification for elders. And then he goes and warns them against those who profess to know God, but they really don't know God. That's chapter 1. He even mentions some of the characteristics of these false converts there in chapter, near the end of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul gives some specific instruction to men and women of all ages, of what Christians' behavior should look like. What their life should generally be about. And give some specific things about what that looks like. And then it's in direct contrast to verses 10 through 16. It's really interesting to this. You look 10, 10 through 16, and then you look 1 through 10 of chapter 2, and it's a huge contrast. And he's meaning for them to see this contrast. He's meaning to see that, that, that there should be a difference. Then beginning with the very first phrase of verse 11, Paul gives the basis as to why Christians' behavior and their thought process and their life should be different from that of the world. You should be able to tell a difference. So he gives the, the, the basis of why that is. So look with me at verse 11 there, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God is the basis of it's the foundation of a Christian's behavior that clearly contrasts it with that of the world. It's the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. So the first question we need to answer in order to discover what grace teaches is, what is grace? Now, I know many of you have got, got things going through your head right now. You've got definitions that you've heard or you've read. What is the definition of grace? And we could go around the room and people give very similar Definitions. I'm sure that would ha- you would see some commonality between those definitions that we give of grace. And uh, uh, we want to look at, at this question, what is grace, by looking at three different levels. First of all, the definition of grace. And the simplest definition that I've heard is unmerited favor. You've probably heard that one too, unmerited favor. We're given merit not based on anything good inside of us, not based on anything that we have done, or will do, but we're given merit, we're given favor with God. That's grace. 
We could also say this demerited favor. What do I mean by that? Meaning we're given favor even though we, that we have sinned. It's demerited. We get, you know what a demerit is? You get oop, checked because you did something wrong. Well, we got more than checks against us. We got the wrath of God against us because of our sin. So it's demerited favor. We're getting fair, favor in spite of our sin. Uh, we, we, we get what we don't deserve. We deserve death that he gives us life. That's grace. We who are guilty and unworthy sinners are given favor that delivers us from God's just condemnation and wrath. That's grace. I mean, you've probably heard the, the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Yeah, that's a good one too. We get God's riches because of what Christ did. Nothing that we did. That's grace. Yet grace doesn't just stop there. And often that's where we stop. And that's amazing right there. That's enough to sing the song called Amazing Grace. But it's more amazing than that. It doesn't stop there. It's also the des- desire and power to do God's will. Grace is the desire and power to do God's will. Where do I get that? Not from Webster. But from God's word. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is Paul writing. What is Paul? He's a saint. Now, I'm not th- maybe you're thinking of a different kind of saint. I'm, anybody who's a Christian is a saint. It means holy one. All right, he's a holy one. Why? Because of what Christ did for him and changed him from the inside out. So I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. He's saying... Let's go ahead. Let's find out who labored the most. I labored more than all of them. But not I. But the grace of God with me or in me. He's saying that everything that he did, all that he did for the glory of God, all that he did in his life that was worth anything was by this power of grace. See, grace, yes, it's unmerited favor. It's demerited demerited favor. It's getting something we don't deserve. We get life and we deserve death. But it's also the desire and power to do God's will. Grace doesn't stop at the door. It comes into us and changes us from the inside out. And we're going to see this throughout our passage, this aspect of grace. When answering the question, what is grace, we, we first looked at the definition of grace. When answering this, this question, we also want to ask a, another question for what is grace. And on the definition of grace, we also want to see it on a second level, the personification of grace. It's a big word, personification. Well, let me explain to you what I mean here. Grace is more than just a concept. It's more than just an attribute. It's more than just a word. It goes way beyond that. Ultimately, grace is found in a person. Ultimately, grace is found in a person. Look with me again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, or your translation says may something similar like this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. What does this mean that grace of God has appeared? To what is this referring? Or better yet, to whom is this referring? This is speaking of the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest revelation of his grace toward mankind. Grace appeared. It manifested itself before us in living color. Not it, but he manifested himself. And this is God's greatest revelation of grace in the person 
of Jesus Christ. Grace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says something very similar to this to Timothy, which is also a pastoral epistle written to Timothy, who was the pastor of Ephesus, as we mentioned before. What it says, to, he, Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, listen to this, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Grace was granted us. It's been revealed and has appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace has. You see, grace appeared or was manifested to the world in the greatest degree ever. See, I think grace is all through the Bible. This, this, decided, this, this old thought about the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace, is garbage. It's false. In the beginning, God created. That's grace. From the very first verse, it's grace. To the very last verse, it's grace. There's grace all over the place. But in the greatest degree, greater than the creation, was the giving of his son when Christ appeared. Was the greatest manifestation of his grace. Let me say this. Jesus does not just contain grace. He is grace. It's like we said about God's holiness. God doesn't just have holiness. He is holy. And Jesus didn't just contain grace. He is grace. In answering the question, what is grace? We've seen the definition of grace. We've seen the personification of grace. It's in a person. And on a third level, we want to see the purpose of grace. Look with me again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Or your translation again may say something like, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Notice that phrase, bring salvation. This is the purpose of grace. The grace found in Jesus. He appeared or came into being to bring salvation. Salvation from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. He came to bring salvation. Often we think about salvation, right? Hey, I'm saved. Well, that's a true statement too, but listen, this is, I'm being saved. That's true too. I will be saved and that's true too. All those are true. From the penalty, power, and the presence of sin. That's why grace came. Now, depending on your translation, all men either goes with has appeared or bringing salvation. Uh, there, there's, there, some translations are a little different there. Either is possible and appropriate in the Greek. And would be understood by those reading Greek because the Greek word order is not the same as our English word order. We wouldn't understand it at all. All right, so there's a difference in Greek word order, and either is possible, either would be understood. But again, what helps us understand what this means? Starts with a C. Context helps us understand what does this mean? Well, let me first tell you what it's not teaching. It's not teaching that all will be saved. It's not teaching universalism. That's not true. We know that throughout the scripture. Okay. What it is teaching is that grace found in the ministry and purpose of Jesus Christ brings salvation to all types or classes of mankind. Now, where do I get that? It says all. Doesn't it mean all? Well, yeah, it means all. But all always means, all, it always means something in context, right? We've got to be very careful. There's words we use all the time that have different meaning in context, and they all can't, it doesn't always mean all. 
in totality every single person because then we would have universalism so how do we know it's teaching all types or classes look at verses 9 and 10 because God through Paul tells us when he writes to Titus urge bond slaves to be subject to their masters and everything to be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men go back to that it's got brothers and sisters young men old men all, all through chapter 1. He's talking about all different types of people. Men, women, boys and girls, people who come from different classes, quote-unquote economic, socioeconomic classes. And we know this is true also because in the end, look what's going to happen. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God your blood from every men, tribe, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Isn't it beautiful? All types of people. Wherever you are this morning, whatever, wherever you come from, whether you come from the Ivory Coast, or you come from China, or the Philippines, or from Texas, or even from Kentucky, whether you're an engineer, or an operator, or a student, or a teacher, or a housewife, whatever it is, whether you're red, yellow, black, and white, God saves all types of people. Isn't that beautiful? And I'm so glad he does. It's part of the manifold grace of God. So we see from verse 11, answering this question, what is grace? Here's a, a, a couple sentences, I guess, or a long run-on sentence. I'm taking my, my, my uh, directions from Paul because he's the master of run-on sentences. In fact, verses 11 all the way down through verse 14 is one sentence. All right, way to go, Paul. So what's those English professors who count off on that? Paul did it, right? I'm kidding. But uh, actually wouldn't punctuation in the Greek like we have today, so it's, it's a little bit different. But here's summing that all up. Grace is God's divine favor and power. So grace is God's divine favor and power toward people who don't deserve it. God, grace is God's divine favor and power toward people who don't deserve it, poured out in the person of Jesus to bring about salvation in the lives of all types of people. That's verse 11. That's what is grace. That is grace. Right here from God's word. And you're thinking, man, that was one verse. We're in trouble this morning. All right? We're never going to get around to this ordination, are we, Jared? No, we will. So let's look on at the second question we need to answer in order to discover what grace is. And here's the question. What does grace teach? What does grace teach? So we're going to discover what grace teaches by asking a simple question. Right? What does grace teach? So look with me at verses 12 through 15. I'm going to read all of these uh, together, and then we'll come back and look at what grace teaches. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of, your, of, of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all humility. Let no one disregard you. What an unbelievable passage. It's in these verses where we discover what grace teaches. Right here, verses 12 through 15. 
Notice the first two words of verse 12. Instructing us, or teaching, or training us. Grace teaches something. That's where I got the, the subtitle of this message. What grace teaches. It says instructing, it teaches us something. Also know the little, notice the little word there in your, in your Bible. Instructing us, it may say to, or it may say that. It's, a, it's, a, it's what's called a hina clause. All right? It, it, it's a purpose clause. In order to, or so that, we could also say. That would be an appropriate translation for this. In order to, so that. And, and the, the, the so that, or the purpose, is instruction brings about change. Instructing us to, to something. In order that something might happen. It brings about transformation, not just information. This teaching is not merely pointed at our intellect, like my professors were in college. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not just to our intellect. But more importantly, internally, from the new heart that's been given to us because of and through the grace of God seen in His Son. This is also, this, 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 this instructing us, is in the present tense, meaning that grace continually is instructing or training us. It's not a one-time deal, but it continues to teach us. Now, we see from these verses that grace continually teaches us three main things. I'll just put them in three main categories. There's more than three, but just for, for purpose of this morning, three main categories. The first main category is grace teaches us to deny. Grace teaches us to deny. Look at verse 12. Instructing us to deny, to renounce, to say no. It teaches us to deny. Now this is the the negative aspect of what grace teaches, right? The, The no. No. Don't do that. Or denounce that. Say no to that. And now this, this word here, instructing us to not deny, I'm, I'm throwing this out here because it's important that we see this because we see the totality of what grace teaches. It's in the aorist, which we don't really have a perfect um, uh, equality in English, but aorist is a once-for-all past action. We would just have it in the past, mostly in English translation, but it's a once-for-all past action. So as a Christian, we renounce a life of sin and self-righteousness. Right? It teaches us to deny. We, we deny that kind of life. Now this aorist, along with the present tense instructing us, all right, instructing us to deny, now listen to this, gives the idea of a past renouncing leading to a continual life of renouncing. You see that? It changes things. Yes, there is a past action of renouncing. I'm renouncing sin. I'm renouncing self-righteousness. I'm clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's this this past action with a result that will continue on. You have an heiress and a present together. That's what happens. So past action that leads to ongoing renouncing of sin. You see, grace changes us. We can't be the same. What does grace teach us to deny? Look what verse 12 says. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, these are the things that set themselves up against God and the things of God. We saw this all throughout the Gospel of John. These people who set the world, even the word world was used that way most of the time in the Gospel of John. And many of those things are listed in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. These people that he's teaching to contrast your life to. Many of those things that are worldly and, and, and ungodly and worldly desires. 
Uh, let me help you here too. Ungodliness is the root principle. The setting yourself up against God. That's ungodliness. And the worldly desires are the man- manifestation of that principle. When you set yourself up against God in ungodliness, what comes out are following after worldly, following after worldly desires. So you have a root principle and a manifestation of the root principle. We, those who are followers of Christ, who've been changed by God's grace, are continually being taught or changed by grace that leads to denying ungodliness and worldly desires. It characterizes our life. Followers of Christ are changed. And their life is not explained mainly. Do we still sin? You bet we do. Remember, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. Are we growing in this area? So, are, are, do we still sin? Yes, we do. But, what characterizes our life is denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Well, the second main thing that grace teaches us, not only does it teach us to deny, but secondly, grace teaches us to live. Look again at verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live so instructing us to live this is the positive side of what grace teaches we can't just deny or say no to things and leave it at that no 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 because if we do that guess what there's always going to be something around the corner to replace it if we're just saying no that's not enough and, and, and Paul is very clear on that we must then live. We must replace the negative with a positive. Paul speaks about this in other letters he writes. is put off and put on. This is a key teaching all throughout Paul's letters. We put off, we put on. We deny, yet we live. Now, to live is also in the same <clears throat> uh, structure that to deny was. So it's, it's just this idea of this in, just to live that we've chosen to, to deny but we've also chosen to live we've chosen to trust Christ that we might have life it's a past action but it leads to a life present tense of continually living for the glory of God past continuing into the present so how or in what way does grace teach us to live look at verse 12 it says to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Now when you break all this down, it points to living in a God-honoring way in all three of our relationships that we have in our lives. These words, sensibly, righteously, godly. So first of all, sensibly. It's the same word used over if you flip back in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, older men, sensible. And then verse 5, uh, speaking of women, to be sensible. Verse 6, you young men, too, be sensible. And, and it has the idea of being having a self-controlled manner. Being self-controlled. Being sensible. And, and that is, is, is much more about oneself. About what's going on inside of us. It's being sensible. Being self-controlled. Secondly, to live righteously uh, in an upright manner. It's where we get the word right from. To, to, to live in a right way, an upright manner. And, and that's speaking about one's relationships with others. So if sensible self, we have righteously our relationship with others, 
And we can see that in one of my favorite verses from Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's living righteously, upright, having concern for others. And thirdly, and, and it says, and godly, live godly. And it's used in Paul's writings. When you go study this word in Paul's writings, it refers to one's relationship with God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's what we're talking about. That's what he's talking about, is to live godly in a right relationship with God. So living, in a sense, in a right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. So that's what characterizes this living that he calls us to as believers that's happening to us. Also notice this phrase, in the present age. Not just in the age to come, because we know we'll be perfect then, right? Nothing, we won't ever do anything wrong. We won't have a wrong thought. We won't ever see sin again. But he says in the present age, the grace of God changes a person in the here and now, not just with when we're with Christ in glory. It changes us now. People often will, will shortchange grace. That someone can be a believer. Someone can know the grace of God. And the grace of God can be in them and with them and bring about no change. Where is that in the Bible? If that's all grace is, that's nothing. Grace changes everything. Not only then, but now. And I'm so thankful for that. The the, the things that that are going on in my heart, in my mind, and, and the way that I act sometimes... Does it characterize me? Because God has changed me. But, but for the grace of God, I would be way worse than that. And you would be too. But for God's grace, it changes us continually. And I'm so thankful that grace is way more than just a ticket out of hell into heaven. Well, notice what else it teaches in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of your great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace also teaches the believer to have a longing for the second coming. And we talked about this last week in our last series on, on, on ology, eschatology. Charlie, I did eschatology in 45 minutes last week. It was unbelievable. And everybody left wanting, <laughs> all right? Uh, but we learned a couple of things we know for sure last week. Um, that we should have a longing for Christ's return. It should characterize a follow of Christ. Now, you've all heard this, and I said this last week, you've heard this. That person's so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. That's not the problem today. The problem is people aren't heavenly-minded enough to be any earthly good today. We all are consumed with what is here and not looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is characterizes one who has been saved, one who has been changed by the grace of God. As we learned last week, we should live every day for that day. Every day for that day, as Martin Luther said. We should be so heavenly minded that we will be of earthly good. A very important detail in this passage I want you to see here is in the phrase, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Look there with me. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The construction of this phrase in the Greek points to the deity of Christ. God and Savior refer to to one person, not two. It's God... And Savior, Jesus Christ. Both speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the deity of Christ. It's a huge problem that we have with Mormonism. They don't believe that Jesus was God. If he's not God, then he can't die for our sins. And we're all up a creek. And this is one of the most clear passages in all of Scripture. God and Savior. And the, the definite article, is only one definite article. It points to both. 
God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Paul not only teaches us how grace uh, teaches us to live, but reminds us of how grace has made it possible to empower us to live in this way. Look at verse 14. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Christ, our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God's grace comes to us through Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. The word redeem means to purchase for deliverance from something. He redeemed us. This redemption delivers us from sin, and it purifies us and makes us his own. That's what redemption does, and that's what Jesus did. And this grace that comes through Jesus will not only make us his own and not only purify us and not only purchase us and deliver us from the the penalty power and the, the, the presence of sin, but look what else it does. It makes us zealous for good deeds, eager or enthusiastic for good deeds. That's the natural outflow of one who's been changed by the grace of God. We're fired up about good deeds. Now, a lot of people get on people. They're just a goody two-shoes. Well, praise God if they know Christ, that they're a goody two-shoes. If they're zealous for good deeds, they want to do what's right. And that is characteristic of those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that we're zealous for good deeds. Now, this is the fulfillment of the internal aspect of the new covenant. We see in the Old Testament, we can, you can find it in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. I just wanted to just look at one of these passages this morning to be encouraged that this is exactly what God prophesied would happen. For I will take from you the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, this is speaking specifically, first of all, to the Jews. But we're also brought into the new covenant through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're given a new heart. We're given a new spirit that, that, it, that changes us to walk in his statutes, to be careful to observe his ordinances, to be zealous for good deeds. That's great news. Because without that, we won't be zealous for good deeds. We'll be zealous for our deeds. To promote ourselves. Well, not only does grace teach us to deny and to live, the third main thing grace teaches us is grace teaches us to disciple. Grace teaches us to disciple. Look at verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Notice that first phrase, these things speak. It's the same imperative of verse 1 of the same passage. Go back to verse 1. But as for you, speak the things. And it's actually in the Greek the exact same um, format. Now we have to get in English to get it over to make it sound right so we, won't sound, so we can understand what it means. These things, the things, speak the things. It's the exact same thing as here in, in verse 15. Speak these things. It's in the present tense in, indicating Titus should continually speak these things. Verses 1 through 14. Teach them what to do and how they're enabled to do it. What to do, verses 1 through 10. How they're enabled to do it, verses 11 through 14. Grace is how they're enabled to live, verses 1 through 10. And notice he's not only to speak these things, but what else does it say? To exhort. So he's to speak, he's to teach these things. He's to teach these principles. But he's also to exhort them. To obey. 
There's a difference, you see. To speak them, you're putting the words out there. Then you're calling people. This is what he's calling Titus to exhort them to obey. Don't just listen. Do something. And then not only that, not only to, to, to speak and exhort, but to reprove as well. If people are not obeying, then come alongside them in love, remembering that you don't always obey either. Come aside them in love and point out the error and call them by God's grace to repent. That's what he's calling them to do here. This describes the process of discipleship. You speak it. You, you teach the principles. Then you say, okay, you see that? Yeah, I see that. So what should we do that? We need to obey that. Okay, you need to obey that. And then when we walk outside of that, we reprove. We, we love them. And we bring them back and say, hey, brother, I'm concerned about this in your life. I'm seeing this, you walk down this path. I'm going to call you to repent so you won't have to deal with the consequences on the other side. To come back to what we, you said you believed. That we saw it in God's word. And, and you said, yeah, I want to obey that. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it together. That's what he's calling to do. It's a process of discipleship. Paul writes to Timothy, again, a young pastor, very something similar. These things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations in that. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and the others also that will be able to teach. And it's a cycle. He's calling Titus to do this very same thing. To speak to exhort, to reprove. Now notice that the phrase with, in, in, back there in verse 15, with all authority. It's God's authority because it's God's word. We just talked about that in Sunday school a little bit. What brings authority is God's word. When somebody asks you what, what you think, it doesn't really matter, does it, Brian? It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. What you think is worthless. What I think is worthless. You're thinking, this is unbelievable. What God's word says matters. That's worth something. Just because we think something doesn't make it right, does it? But God's word makes it right. And that's what brings authority to what he's calling Titus to do. Speak this with authority. It's God's word. And why? It's because Titus' instruction came from Paul who had been commissioned by God, right? And Paul said, hey, Titus, get on it. Yes, sir. Notice that last phrase. Let no one disregard you. The word disregard means to think around. Now, to think around. And maybe we're guilty of this. And he can't be talking to me this morning. He's probably talking to that other person. Will you ever think around like that? Well, it really doesn't mean that. Husbands love your wife, Christ loves the church. Well, it really doesn't mean that. Children obey, it really doesn't mean that. It means uh, there's something secret behind that. No, it means that. And we can think all we can around the truth of the word of God. There's some things that are difficult to understand in God's word, yes, but most of it's the plainest day. Mark Twain says, not the parts of the Bible I don't understand I have a problem with. It's the parts that I do understand that I've got a problem with. And we can all say that. Don't let anyone disregard you. Try to work and reason their way out of things. He's encouraging Titus to stand firm because he stands on God's word. What a great passage. What a powerful passage about what grace teaches. So Jared, because you're a follower of Christ, having been redeemed from every lawless deed and purified as his possession you Jared Heath Manning called for zealous good works I charge you by God's grace to continue to allow God's grace in Jesus to teach you to change you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly 
righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But don't stop there, Jared. I also charge you by God's grace in your role as a pastor to lovingly disciple others as you speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you because you stand on the word of God. And everyone else here this morning, I also want to charge you if you are a follower of Christ and having been, been made a follower of Christ by his grace, been redeemed from every lawless deed, and redeemed and purified his own possession, zealous for good deeds, I charge you by God's grace to continue to allow God's grace to be your greatest teacher, to change you, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I don't want you to stop there either. Because God wouldn't have you stop there. I'll also charge you and myself by God's grace in your role as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to lovingly disciple others as you speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you because you stand on the word of God. Good news. Grace changes everything. And that's what grace teaches. What a great professor. I'm glad he's the only one that counts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your grace changes everything. That we are all here um, changed by your grace. And everything that good, the good that comes is by your grace. Lord, we receive that from you this morning. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for Jared. Thank you that we have the privilege to, to lay hands on him, to officially and formally and publicly... Um, recognize what you have done and are doing and will do in his life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Jared, I'm going to ask you to come up here, brother. Um, you know, it's easy to, to preach a passage like that, not because of me, but it's easy to preach a passage like that and have a guy like Jared in mind. And watch what the grace of God has done in his life. Is he perfect? No. Not at all. Um, but God has had his hand on Jared for a long time. Hadn't you, Pete? And God has been using Jared to build up and encourage the body of Christ since he was a kid. He's taken leadership roles on as a kid and a teenager that most of us won't take on ever in a church. And God used that to mold him and, and shape him and, and make him to what he's made him in today. And he's going to continue to use his grace to change him forever and ever and ever. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that God called Jared to minister here with us. And all of us here, everyone here, even if you're visiting with us, God has used Jared's gifts and his calling to minister to you, even for the very first time. And Jared, is, as you know, he comes to kids, we want him to see this too. All right, come on in, kids. We'll give them a second to sit down. Oh, hi, sweetie. Hey, buddy, yeah, go sit, go sit with Joshua. Okay, okay. All right, thank you, buddy. All right. Well, Jared, Jared, God has used Jared to use his gifts and his calling, his commitment to bless all of us. 
Even the little ones coming in, right? And uh, we're, we're recipients of that. We're thankful for that. Jared can't, doesn't just lead music, but he preaches. And all of us have been recipients of his preaching and also teaching. And also in small group, working with our students, working with helping things look better, helping our website like be active and alive and, and moving and all these kind of things, all the things that God has get, uh, um, gifted him with. And it's a blessing to all of us that God not only called him, called him to be a pastor, but called him to come and use those gifts here. Would you all, would you, even if you're on amen or would you all amen that? Amen. Yeah, Amen. Pete, we need to have a class on Amen and brother. You and Tyler, we're going to get them going, all right? Um, but we're thankful for that. And Jared, what a blessing you are to me in my own personal life. And Jared and I meet twice a week. One is uh, just about personal stuff, just to get into our own hearts and ask each other tough questions and pray for each other. And um, sometimes being a pastor can be lonely. Um, you know that, don't you, Charlie? But it's nice to have a, a brother in arms, and all, all of you are a part of that. But it's nice to have someone who does something similar, right? All of you have those things to talk with and to pray with and encourage and challenge each other with. And then we meet another day just to talk about what's going on in our body and, and how we can help and what we see. And um, so uh, it's a privilege for me to get to spend a lot more time with Jared, even than some of you. Well, what we want to do today is we want to follow the, the example in Scripture, Jared, is we want, to, we want to lay hands on you. And there's nothing magical that happens through the hand. There's no the force is with you or anything like that. But what it is, it's a, it's a physical representation. When you put your hand on somebody, that says something, doesn't it? And, and, and what we're going to do is ask all the elders and deacons and anybody else who's here who's been ordained as an elder, pastor, deacon, or maybe you're an elder that's rotated off. But if you're here this morning, we want to ask you, I'm going to ask you, Jared, to, to get on his knees. And one by one, I just want you to come through and I just want you to put your hands on him. I just want you to pray. Say some kind words to him, whatever you want to say. Um, pray for him. And ask all of us to be praying for Jared right now as, as these men come and, and they lay hands on Jer Jared. So, Jared, if you just come over here and kneel down. And you, you guys, just come on. Don't be bashful. All of you guys, let's go. And the rest of you, just if you just be praying for Jared now as he s sits here. Father, I thank you for Jared and just for the, the person he is. is a
Gary. Well, uh, a couple things to commemorate this uh, occasion for Jared. We want to do is want to give him a Bible, and uh, for this particular occasion, and. Uh, on the front of it, this is, it's a unique size because Jared's unique, okay? And I really thought about that when I thought this, okay? Um, it says, Jared Manning, Ephesians four eleven through 13, which talks about the call of pastor teachers, one of the people who are called to equip the saints for service. So as you look at this, Lord, I, Jared, I prepare you to be reminded of that, what call, God's called you to. It's also calfskin leather. It just makes you want to read it, all right? And, uh, but it'll last a long time, and it's uh, so what I, I have one for the, I use my preaching Bible, and uh, so this is a gift from Grace Bible Church to you, brother. You're back, man. And another thing to remind you of this day is this uh, certificate. And I'll see this, and I'll read it to you here in just a second. Here's what it says. Grace Bible Church of Brazosport, Certificate of Ordination. Jared Heath Manning, having responded to the Spirit's call and formally professing faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and vowing obedience to his holy word, has been duly called and ordained to minister as pastor of Grace Bible Church on this 16th day of March in the year of our Lord, 2014. Well, now I'm going to ask Jared and the music team and put him back to work. All right, come and lead us into one last song. <laughs>